Life Audio. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Sparkle Speak. I'm your host, Catherine. I still don't have my fancy intro, but I am working on it. Nonetheless, you're going to love today's episode. We have on Dr. Emily Smith. She's a global health expert and creator of the popular Facebook page, Friendly Neighbor Epidemiologist. She comes on to talk about her new book called The Science of the Good Samaritan, Thinking Bigger About Loving Our Neighbors. I really love the concept of her book. She talks a lot about how do we love people well when There's different cultures and backgrounds and beliefs, and she also does it through the lens of being an epidemiologist. (laughs) And I don't, when I read this, I was like, how is she going to do that? But she does it in such an eloquent way. Her writing is phenomenal. Her attitude is phenomenal. And I just know you're going to love hearing about her book. After a few words from our sponsors, please enjoy. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Um, So I guess to start off, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, like your career, where do you live, your family, that kind of thing? Sure. Um, Well, I'm Emily Smith. I live here in North Carolina. Been married to my pastor husband for 20 years this year. We just hit 20, which feels really weird. (laughs) Like if, I mean, at this point, I thought when my parents hit 20, like they knew what everything was happening and (laughs) That's just not the case. Aww. We have two kiddos, a 15-year-old girl and a 12-year-old boy, uh, two dogs, you know, just a, kind of as normal as can be in the throes of parenthood and um, and all that looks like. Uh, and I'm an epidemiologist, a global health. I do global health work and teach at Duke University and the Duke Global Health Institute. Awesome. That's cool. And I'm I'm sure that has a little bit to do with with your book and, and how you yeah. decided to write it. So I'm excited to hear more about that too. Um, but I'd love to hear from you uh, your answer to this question too. So this is something we ask everybody being a faith-based podcast. I'd love to hear from you just how you first started identifying yourself as a Christian or um, maybe after that, has there been like a significant season of life or an event that really helped solidify your faith? Mm, that's a neat, I have not been asked that question um, on all of these podcasts. And so I kind of like that because it's a different turn than um, what I'm used to, especially with the book, especially from a science you know, perspective where a lot of times you just don't talk about the faith. Sure. Um, yeah. So I, I grew up in the church. I mean, my parents, we grew up in a charismatic church and um, mom and dad were the worship leaders. And so we were just always in church. And, and I say that, and I also, I, I usually want to put an asterisk to it that 
I have always loved going to church too. You know, I wasn't like made to go, didn't have those type of experiences. And, um, and, but I think it was when I was five or six at a VBS, when I got saved, I remember the little room, like little praying hands that we made out of paper mache. <laughs> I don't know if you mean anything like, I think my mom still has mm-hmm. that. Um, and then just had a, you know, a great church, great youth group. I went to a Christian college. Um, so I've, I've just always loved the Lord. Um, I think when it became real to me of who I am uh, with him or what I can do in the world was when I went to Honduras with the mercy ships. And that was in college. That was right before um, I graduated. And that, that was like my first stint into seeing poverty up close and personal. Um, I knew I wanted to be a missionary at like six. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not a missionary. I wanted to be that as Sandy Patty, <laughs> which, you know, neither have worked out, which is fine. Um, but we always had missionaries in our home. And well, I just asked them a lot of questions about the world and the globe. And so going to Honduras was kind of that dream coming to fruition. But then it it opened my eyes more to what the world and the globe actually is. Mm. Um, so I think that was probably a biggest turning point, pivot point for me in my career, but also faith. And that's why when people ask, you know, how do you dis- distinguish between faith and science? I just can't because <laughs> it's both and for me. Yeah. I think that's a really uh, unique perspective that you have, like given your career and your faith, you can so see that. And um, I, I do agree with that. I don't think it always has to be one or the other. Like, why yeah. can't it be both? And um, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing some of your perspective in that. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your new book that you wrote? It's called The Science of the Good Samaritan. And can you tell us just a little bit about, you know, what inspired you to write it and what is your book about? Yeah. Well, I've always um I've always wanted to write. You know, I remember telling my grandmother that I think when I was eight or nine, I just want to write a book. I actually wrote a cute little book and illustrated it. And she kept it for, I mean, we found it after she went to heaven. (laughs) She kept it all those years. A big fan of Anna Green Gables and Joe Marsh, you know, from the Little Women. Um, So I kind of had that nugget tucked away for a very long time. And I think what, well, it, I don't know if it inspired me or it was just serendipitous that the opportunity came to actually write a book. And that's just because of what I did during the pandemic when my stuff inadvertently went viral (laughs) multiple times and that growth. And then it it just caught the attention of a couple of an agent um, who contacted me and said, Hey, I think you have a book with what you're talking about with health equity and epidemiology and, you know, everything that I've been talking about for a couple of years on social media. Um, I thought it was spam actually. And I didn't get back because I was getting lots of messages uh, at those time. And then she uh, reached out again and I Googled her and went, Oh, like someone actually wants a book. Um, so I did the whole proposal thing and we shopped it around, but I think that's what it I think that was the point of me thinking maybe I can write a book. Mm. Now the, the motivation of it was what I saw. I think what a lot of us saw during the pandemic of equities and stuff for the first time for a lot of people, 
the church not acting what I thought the church looked like when it was being faithful during the pandemic. Um, And this is not a pandemic book whatsoever, because I just can't talk about it for 200 pages. But what I did see is there were thousands of people who were Christian and were seeing these things for the first time and going, well, what I don't like that. And what's next? And so I tell people, this is a what's what is next book. Like, how do we act like a neighbor in today's world where, it, you know, it's a world made to do the opposite? Yeah, I, I, I'm honestly very excited that you wrote a book like this, because um, as I was, you know, reading some of what you wrote um, in preparation for talking with you, I was like, wow, I, I, I want to know more about this topic and I haven't really seen a book quite like this out there yet. So I'm really thankful that you decided to, to step into that and write. And I love your writing style too, by the way, I also really like Anne of Green Gables. And the minute you said that, I was like, Oh, I'm hooked. Yeah. (laughs) We are, we are best friends. We're going way back. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I, yeah, it's, it's great. Um, and I'd love for you, I mean, obviously I want our listeners to pick up a copy. That's where you'll get the most, you know, information and, and be able to really dive into this topic. But if you could just give us like a small taste here in this interview so that listeners can get excited about picking up a copy. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, some of the main chapters in your book? So I know you broke it out into, it's a verse in Luke that you based off um, centering cost and courage are like your sub points. Um, And I I know you said that you base it off a verse in Luke. And so can you tell us a little bit about, you know, those chapters and then maybe a couple nuggets of each? Yeah, for sure. And maybe I can start with the title because it's, is that okay? Because it seems like, okay, that to me, that is the anchor mainly because I was a pre-med student. Um, I thought that's the only thing you could do in like to be a missionary for people that loved science that just go to med school. And so I um, wasn't or applied to med school and taken an MCAT. And then my husband and I got married and his first job was across the country at a church in South Carolina. So I had a gap year. And as a good nerd, I decided, well, let's just get another degree because it's going to look good on a med school application. And I got it in public health because it was close enough to it. I hadn't really even heard about epidemiology. But day one of, of epi, I mean, I had a great professor, too, so that helped. But he's talking about, you know, the Jeopardy definition of that field of science is the distribution and determinants of disease. And so what that means in in real people terms is like, who is at risk of a disease and how does it spread? And it just clicked in my mind as a person of faith that, oh, that's that's the science of the Good Samaritan. It's quantifying a need, which is always the margins. Right. And then choosing not to walk by. Um, So I've had this stirring of. I want to do that with my career. I want to use my love of data and science to quantify those most at need, which again is the margins, and then to do something about it. And so you fast forward to thinking about that more during um, the pandemic. I started the Friendly Neighbor Epidemiologist page right at the beginning of the pandemic for people like my mom and real life neighbors, you know, because at that time we were all asking the question, what does flatten the curve mean? And do we need to buy a billion rolls of toilet paper? Which the answer was always no. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Although we all, a lot of us did. Um, But I named it Friendly because I am just chatty Kathy on airplanes. And I just, 
it's just who I am. But the neighbor, because I knew something like COVID was going to take neighboring to one another because it's different than something like Ebola. Um, Ebola is horrible. I write about it in the book. But when you are contagious with that, you kind of know you're sick. You know, you very much know you're sick. Like it's a horrific disease. Uh, COVID, on the other hand, you can actually spread it to people before you even know that you're sick. And so it's sneakier. We had also been trained in epidemiology to kind of know what's the next pandemic. And this was giving off all of the red um, flags of this is going to be it and it's going to be bad. So I started the page one for church people of this is our time to, you know, stand up and show the world what faith in God looks like, especially for the margins. Um, and two, because of the Good Samaritan story. Um, so that's a long way to talk about the title of I wanted to write a book about not walking by anymore. Modern day walking by again, it's not, you know, a COVID book. Um, it's also not a faith book. I didn't want it to be centered around just the Christian faith, because I, I just work in beautiful countries of other faiths and other traditions and expressions. And I just didn't want to center it on um, Christianity. And also, once you start talking about the Good Samaritan and the golden rule, like it's in every major religion. If you look, I don't know if you've noticed at the front of the book, there's the love your neighbor uh, from the Bible. But then there's that sentiment where I quote from the other five major religions Mm-hmm. And then at the very bottom of that, it's what my kids said during the pandemic of just uh, be, it's just being a good human is loving your neighbor. And that's he was age nine. So you don't really even have to be a person of faith to recognize you just want to be a good person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the 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 reason I bring that up so much is because it's centered around the story of the Good Samaritan. And a lot of us know that story. I'd heard it billions of times, but I had read it differently during the pandemic. Um, And it's a story where this man comes up to Jesus and says, who's my neighbor? And we don't know his voice inflection, right? We can only kind of guess. But I wonder if he was asking a question of what is good enough to be good enough? You know, how much do I need to tithe? Can I give uh, money at Christmas? Can I donate stuff and that be good enough to be good enough? Uh, And being good Jesus, he didn't actually answer him. He answered him. Usually, you know, usually he answers with, Right. With a either question. a story or a question. Yep. This one, he did both. Hmm. Um, so he tells the story of this man on the side of the road who was hurt and two people walk by. And it's it's interesting to me what Jesus said and what he didn't say in the story, because he definitely lets us know it's the religious leaders at the time. And at the time, that was power and privilege of the day. So they walked by, but a Samaritan um, walked by and stopped. and that. You know, that is like no-no land in um, in the Bible times when Jesus was saying this, because a Samaritan would not be who you expect to stop. But he stopped and he helped the man. He bandaged him up. He took him to an end to recover. And then he paid for all of it. And that gets me teary every time I say that part, because health in my work is the poverty, too. You know, it just affects it so much. Um, and so, and then Jesus turns to the man again, and he said, now, who was the neighbor? And those two postures of who is my neighbor versus who was the neighbor is like doing enough, just enough versus being a neighbor, being a person who my whole life looks neighborly. And so the first part of the book is centering 
because I think we have to learn how to center, at least I do, like Jesus better. Um, Because if you notice in the stories of the Bible, he centers a little kid in the midst of all the disciples. He stops entire crowds for women who are bleeding and are medically impoverished. Like they've spent all their money and he just stops it. That, that story gets me every time. Um, And then in his breakout sermon, like he couldn't said anything and he unrolls the scroll and he reads Isaiah about the oppressed and the captives and the needy. So he has, excuse me, he has a certain way of centering that is different than the world centers. Cause right now it's, it's kind of centered on power and money and privilege. Mm-hmm. So how do we center our hearts? And so that is why I spent a good chunk of that book on centering, because that's going to challenge some of our worldviews. Um, we talk, I, 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 I do try to weave in some stories. And so it helps it like you would be at my kitchen table, but we talk about these big words like systemic racism and structural violence, um, solidarity and equity. And I picked those words specifically because when I would talk about it through the pandemic, those would get the most responses in the worst ways from um, people of Christian faith. Mm. So I thought, gosh, I don't think we understand these words enough because if we did, I think you can hold it up to the sky and it reflects heaven because there's no scarcity there. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we talk a little bit about that and there's some beautiful stories that we can, uh, we can definitely talk about later in that section. Uh, but I also noticed that when you center like Jesus, there's going to be a cost to it. Cause what I found is when I, I started being a little bit more courageous, it's not my nature to be courageous or like number one on stage. Um, and then when I, during the pandemic, when I went viral, you know, it's 10 million people that I spoke to over that time, which is still so weird to me because <laughs> it's just normal science. Um, but when you talk about expressing your faith through love and not walking by, it can ruffle some feathers when you bring in these big terms like racism or climate change or equity. Um, and so we started getting some pretty scary threats at our house uh, in my mailbox. And I mean, my children are there. So it's, And we would get, I would get, you know, pictures of guns and pictures of the Holocaust. I mean, just awful, all from people of faith. But when it's people in your neighborhood that you know, um, that just makes it even more difficult. And so I, and this book is not a tell all, if I'm being really honest, I can't talk about a lot of it yet. (laughs) But there are two chapters in there for that cost section, because I wanted people to know when you start living like a neighbor, it will likely cost something Mm -hmm. um, and to be prepared for that. And then the last, and then that second part of that section, I also got really sick. My body, I think just after two years of that, just said no more. Um, And I got really, really sick in bed for, I mean, a good 15 months. They've just not been able, it was just awful. So hopefully people's cost is not as dramatic as mine. Um, if you can count it beforehand is what I'm hoping. Mm-hmm. And that last section on courage, on if you centered correctly, you've counted the cost and lived through a lot of it. There is some courage to, I think, who be who we were always meant to be. And I, I just can't express 
enough how I feel like I am fully me than I've ever been now mm-hmm. through it. So I'm kind of, I'm not fully grateful for it because it was awful, <laughs> but I can kind of see the glimmers of what that looked like. Mm-hmm. And so what does it look like to look like a neighbor today? You know, how do we shake the systems that are oppressive for people knowing that it's probably not oppressive for us? And I say us as the white American church, I and mean, we live in a lot of privilege. So how do we live in a way that affects my colleagues and my families that I work with in Somaliland, in Burundi, in Tanzania? Um, how do we live in a way that that helps neighbor them well? Uh, also, people just here in our town. So I said a whole lot there, and we can certainly dive into the stories, but that's the overall structure. Yeah, thank you for giving us that. That's an amazing layout for people to understand what you're talking about in this book. And I th- I just want to thank you for um, even just in your introduction to the book, which I was reading, um, you do such a great job of saying, I'm talking about this as a white woman, and I understand that that means I'm privileged. And I love that you said that because um, it's just something I don't always uh, read in books that, you know, a lot of authors just start talking at you. And you did a really good job of saying, like, I understand this is just my lens and that, you know, I'm doing the best I can to, you know, shake up my my viewpoints and, and what I've been taught. Um, and so I think you did a really good job of showing your heart in that, that you were just trying to um, speak as a, a human to other humans and try to get un- people to understand that um, we don't all come from the same viewpoints and perspectives and that's okay, but let's try to get to the heart of just loving people well, the best we can. Yeah. And so I really, I, I guess I say that because I want to... Um, just applaud you for that, but also let people know that I think you do a really good job of letting that shine through in your writing. Um, So I'd love for you to share um, just kind of as we like close out our our episode, can you share a few stories or maybe one or two or however many you want to share of of stories that you've heard of, of where like being a good Samaritan really helped change the world for the better as someone just sought out to love their neighbor well? Yeah. Well, I love that question. I I start the opening of the book by telling you about Dr. Edna Adon Ismail, and she is my favorite. I call her a collaborator friend, but she's a global health hero of mine. She uh, lives in Somaliland, and she more than anybody else has shown me what neighboring looks like. Um, her she's her family is very pivotal in that part of the world. Somaliland is in the Horn of Africa. Um, technically, it is a part of Somalia, but it is its own independent state. It's a democratic area. Um, North of it is Yemen, just to give people kind of context of where it is. And then to the west of it is Ethiopia. It's also the, it's the fourth poorest country of the world Um, with the GDP uh, per annual per capita is like $700. I mean, it's just not much at all. The currency there are a lot of camels. Um, So if you don't know where it is, then just Google it and look at some of the Google images. It's a gorgeous country. But I bring her up because she worked at the WHO. She's a a very big deal. Um, But at 60, she retired and took out her entire pension and went back to her country to build a hospital. The only land that they would give her is the city dump. And she took it because she knew that that was 
the place where the, the women that could not get to healthcare and the highest rates of hemorrhaging during um, birth, you know, and mat- maternal mortalities and babies dying was there because it was the margins. And so she built a hospital um, and it, it's just an incredible place, but I've, I've worked with her now for seven years. And so walking with her through trying to improve the surgical care for children or the cancer care for children in her country has just been such an honor because I've seen her do it with not only boldness, um, but she lives on the hospital grounds. Like she has poured out everything as an offering for her country and is neighboring the margins where, you know, a lot of people won't go. I bring that country up because it is woven throughout the um, the book. One of the stories that I tell in why it's important to know the history of a place is is in 1884. This I promise this is going to come to modern times, so we're not going to do a full history. <laughs> but there, there was a, a a huge horseshoe table where 14 men were there, all white men from high income countries, and on the back of that room was this monstrous map of Africa. And at the the goal at the end of that meeting was to colonize and they wouldn't have called it at that time, but um, to splice and dice the country into which countries were going to get what part of a continent that 12 of the 14 had never even stepped foot in. No one from Africa was there. The Sultan of Zanzibar actually tried to come and was denied entry. So in their opening statement to the splice and dicing was in the name of God Almighty. And that that is not faith that I see, nor God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so by the end of that, 10% of the traditional tribal groups and ethnic groups and countries that were there just naturally were split up. And so when you fast forward to modern days, those countries that were split up and spliced and diced by the colonizers have a 25% higher risk of civil unrest and are the poorest countries in the continent. Somaliland is one of those. And so I bring that up because that country is poor for no fault of its own. The families that are in there that I work with are extremely poor and have to come, you know, some of the mothers come on a wheelbarrow to get to care and deliver their babies And it's of no fault of their own. And I think when we can recognize that some of our wording, some of our depictions of other countries, and I use that in quotes, is a form of othering that can actually shame the countries and the people. And I I think that is not, that's just not Jesus. I don't think that's a being heaven on earth type of people. So that's part of neighboring. Um, The courage part towards the end brings us, we're still in the continent of Africa, but if you go to the east in Sierra Leone, do you remember in 2016 when the Ebola outbreak was happening? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I had a couple of friends who went over there and had to do the, you know, the full hazmat thing and then come back in a very long quarantine. Mm -hmm. Well, in, in the country, there's a man named Dr. Khan. And he is the Anthony Fauci, Taylor Swift of the country. I mean, everybody knows him. He, he's very well known, not only in global health, but just he's been uh, trying to work with global health heroes to get his country ready for you know an epidemic just in case. Well, then 2016 came um, and Ebola hit and they were not prepared of no fault of their own. It's not for a lack of trying. And he ends, ends up getting Ebola. 
Um, it gets very sick very quickly, which is what you do when you don't have supportive care and transferred to another hospital, uh, Doctors Without Borders Hospital that had specialized some specialized care. But he just kept getting really, really sick. Now, there is a treatment, an experimental treatment for Ebola called ZMAP. Um, and there's very limited resources at the time of that. That hospital had one vial of it. And so the question was, can we give it to him? And I mean, my book goes into detail of this on the intricacies of answering that question. It was decided not to give it to him. And a couple of days later, he passed away with none of his family there. One of his friends was allowed to come at the end, but no one else. Horrific death. Two days before he died, there I'm sorry, um, two weeks before he died, another person in the country, in a neighboring country, got Ebola too. Same thing, got sick really quick. They needed to transfer that person. Um, and the question was asked, what about ZMAP with this person? Now, we don't know the intricacies of that conversation, but it was decided that that person would be medevaced. Dr. Khan was asked to be medevaced too, but he was so sick and the airplane was not uh, suited, you know, to take him without everybody else getting sick. So they told him no. So this other person got medevaced in the U.S. plane that looks like the sci-fi airplane. I mean, a HEPA filter. It just looks like a, a movie. Transported back to the U.S., was given ZMAP um, and walked out of that hospital recovered, you know, lived through that. I was intentional in that chapter of who I named as Dr. Khan and who I didn't name. Um, that I did name that organization that got the medevac ready for that second person was Samaritan's Purse. That's not to knock on Samaritan's Purse, although I, I do for other reasons um, for Franklin Graham, you know, in the book. But the question is coming more up at a 30,000 level of who is worthy to get what? And there's right. the power privilege conversation too. And I think that is a holy question to ask, not only of, of people, but of countries. Um, but going back to Somaliland, who gets and who doesn't? Why are countries poor? Why are people poor? You look at redlining here in the States, we talk about that too. So um, mm -hmm. so I just tell those stories. I mean, they're difficult stories to hear and to read, but I think it does something to our hearts when we hear it and respond, you know, when we don't walk by, I guess. Yeah. And it, it just, you know, as you're talking, it brings to mind the verse. I, I don't know where it is in the Bible. I just know it's in there where it says, you know, to those who have been given much, much is expected. Um, yeah. And so I think to be completely honest, many of us born in the United States, we already have a lot that um, some people born in other parts of the country don't just have. Um, and that's, I mean, there are certainly things here that are worse than in other places too. So it's not to say, you know, right. whatever, but um, I just think that when you do have things like healthcare or um, water or feminine materials that you need for, you know, feminine yeah. products, like just basic things that I believe every person person should have access to. If we have those, it is our duty to be helping those who don't. And um, I guess that leads me into my last question I have for you. And that's if, if anyone listening to this um, feels stirred in their heart, feels moved to action or, um, you know, wants to do more than what they're currently doing right now in this topic, what are some action steps you have to give them or something that they could do next that would set them on a trajectory to be a better Samaritan? 
Yeah, I love that question because I think it's it's most of us in the world are asking that question, you know, because we're not all um, people who are going to the front lines in Ebola. A lot of us are, I mean, uh, for years, I was just a mom of little bitties <laughs> and not doing not doing anything, you know, I use anything, you know what I mean? Not doing um, those type of things. We're doing holy work for sure. Folding that laundry. So in the back, I do give some practical tips on what to do as a, a, as a family. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think the biggest thing, if people are feeling stirred, if, especially if you are a white American to read and listen a lot more, at least initially than just jumping to Africa and doing something because the white saviorism is pretty rooted deep into us, even unconsciously. And so to do the hard work and the lengthy work of rooting that out before we go and help and actually maybe do a little bit more damage than neighboring um, side by side. I have a whole chapter in there on the word solidarity and what that means, especially in helping context, you know, from a faith motivation. Mm -hmm. So I, that gosh, that's just, I wish I had a 10 step program. I think the book would have been easier to write. I think that the thing to do is to read and listen a whole lot more than talking at least for a while. Mm, that's great advice. And, and I guess this just came to mind too. Like, you know, for someone like me, I can hear this or have this conversation and then say, well, where do I start? Like, what topic would I even want to learn about first? Because there's so much that's wrong and so many people who need help. And so, and so many marginalized groups, right? Like, do you learn more about, you know, pregnant women or do you learn more about orphans or who, like, who do you help first? So I do have any insight into that. I, I just love that question. Have you gotten to the Nehemiah chapter? This is at the very end in the current section. It's way back. Oh, when you do, will you email me and tell me if it's good? (laughs) Yes. Well, I'm excited to get there. (laughs) That, that chapter is that question, because if you're like me, you just want to help all and then you're mowed over. Like there's just no way, nor does, do I think that God expects us to do all of it. Right. But what, what can I do? Like, what's my lane? And so the story of Nehemiah, um, you know, he was just a cupbearer to the King. It tells us that at the very end of chapter one, which in my Bible, I have the, I have that dated a couple of times, like in 2016, I'm a PhD student instead of a cupbearer to the King, you know, I marked it out or I'm a new mom 2018. And, um, but then when you flip it to chapter two, he goes and he rallies people and they start building the wall. But then there's these two guys, Sambalot and um, to- to- Tobias, is that right? I call him San and Tobe for short to kind of poke fun at him. So I don't actually remember his <laughs> real name, <laughs> but they come up and they basically say, there's a lot of people talking bad about you. Why don't you come and defend yourself? And he doesn't take the bait, you know, cause he's like, I'm not gonna, I'm building a wall. I'm doing my stuff, which you got to give him props because a lot of us, at least I would be like, well, you know, someone, let me go right that wrong. But then they come in more with a sneak attack and they just say, um, how about let's just go to coffee and let's just talk about what you're doing. That's my, I mean, for my husband's a pastor. So for all you pastors out there, I'm sorry that I, that's not NIV. Yeah. (laughs) 
And he says the coolest thing. He stops and he says, um, I am not coming down. I'm doing a good work. And then he just starts on building. Like he didn't take the coffee date bait. And for me, that has been such an anchor that I can't do it all, you know, because there's climate change, there's poverty, which is what I do, poverty type work. Um, there's babies dying. There's poverty right next door in our neighborhoods. Uh, we can't do it all. But what is my great work that I am not coming down for? And I think that takes some discernment, you know, to really pray and sift through that. My giftings of being a science nerd and then my natural gravitation is to the margins and poverty. So that's my one thing. But I've got a friend who her natural inclination and she could talk about it all day long is climate. And so that's her great thing. And I think mm -hmm. when we can do that together, I think it just helps us focus. What is my great work that I'm not going to come down for and not listen to all of the distractions? Wow, that is really powerful. I love that. I will let you know when I read that. Good. Um, Thank you. Yeah. And it makes me think too, like, uh, you know, I'm I'm still, we're, we're all, you know, works in progress, right? No one has arrived yeah. anywhere. But I do think that it, over time in my personal life, I have seen, uh, you know, it kind of takes shape what God created each of us for, right? Like, yeah. and it started out as a kid, like maybe just certain interests you had or experiences or desires or trips you took or whatever. And then it kind of, you know, you, you maybe try volunteering somewhere or you go to school and you yeah. learn something or you meet someone who inspires you. It just kind of slowly takes shape until maybe one day it is a little bit clearer of, you know, wow, this, this is my lane. This is what God has created a passion in me to um, learn about and assist with. And then I love your um, insight of like, once you figure that out, don't get distracted, just yeah. keep at it. So that's really awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all that with us today. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Sparkle Speak. As always, you can find us at sparklefaith.com or check us out at Instagram on at underscore sparklefaith underscore. And you can also check our show notes to find out information from our guests. Also head to our partners at lifeaudio.com. There you can find a series of other podcasts just like this one. And we will see you back here next week. There's no better way to start your day than spending time in God's Word and in prayer. Don't know where to start? We have a free daily prayer podcast created to help you do just that. The Your Daily Prayer podcast delivers a thoughtful, devotional, and timely prayer to you seven days a week. Gain inspiration, faith, and encouragement with daily messages in 10 minutes or less. To start listening now, search Your Daily Prayer on your favorite podcast app or visit lifeaudio.com.